Welcome back to the family series, a series on relationships, getting to like the people you love, including our relationship with God. Every year before Pesach, before Passover, we try to find new insight, which will provide new inspiration from the story of the Exodus. And just when you think you've run out of new ideas, and just when you think there's nothing more to plumb from that story, we find this new insight. We generally assume or we dismiss Pharaoh as some kind of mindless dictator who had a very limited vocabulary, and all he ever said was, no, I won't let them go. And it took ten plagues to break the stubbornness of the man before he would permit the Jewish people to leave Egypt. But this is a story in the Torah. It's a story of biblical proportion, and every character in the story must be fitting, must be deserving in some way, positive or negative, to be part of the Bible, to be part of the Torah. It may be true that Pharaoh was insane, but he was not stupid. And in fact, if we look at the story as it is written, we find that early in the conversations between Pharaoh and and Moses and Moshe, Pharaoh's first reaction to the idea that the Jews want to leave, his first reaction was, you're growing lazy. You've become lazy. We've got to give you more work to do. You've got too much free time, and you're starting to dream. You're starting to to drift off into... uh, unrealistic thoughts and plans. From what we know about Egypt in those days, they were a very forward-looking country, people. They were, at that time, the most modern, the most sophisticated. They believed in preparing for the future. They believed in building and construction. They believed in developing the sciences and the arts. They somehow knew how to build pyramids. They knew how to embalm bodies to keep them intact for thousands of years. And there were other things that they were very advanced in. When Moshe came to Pharaoh and said, we want to go out into the desert to serve God. The God of the Jews says, let my people go so that they can serve me. Pharaoh heard or what Pharaoh heard was that here are a group of people who want to go out into the desert in search of a religious experience. And Pharaoh was advising them with, with some uh, wisdom and with some legitimacy that although it might not be a picnic living in Egypt, although they are the slaves and the builders and so on, but better to be in Egypt, being constructive in some way, than to go out into a desert in search of a religion, to go out in in search of God. This is very unhealthy, he said. This comes from idle minds. Go back to work. Work harder, in fact, and get these silly notions out of your mind. After a couple of plagues, the people in Egypt were saying to Pharaoh, this might be a message from God. 
This is the work of God, the finger of God. Maybe we should let them go. Pharaoh was not impressed. Moshe came back, let's put it in the vernacular, in modern terminology. Moshe comes back to, to Pharaoh after the plague, let's say, of frogs, the second plague. And he says, now will you let us go? And Pharaoh says, you know, your thinking is very twisted. You're going to go off into a desert and you're going to discover God because there were frogs in Egypt? This justifies your going off into a desert? What are you going to do next? Read tea leaves? So there were frogs. Actually, the, uh, the Egyptian uh, magicians, sorcerers, they were able to produce frogs also. So Pharaoh said, what are you doing? You're starting a religion based on frogs? You're going to go off into the desert and you're going to start a religion because there were frogs or lice or hail? This is very unhealthy. And after a few more plagues, Pharaoh's reaction or statement to Moshe was, don't you see the dangers that lie ahead? There's evil awaiting you out there. And what he really meant was simply this. When people go off in search of God, when people go off in search of a religion, they're headed in a very dangerous direction. You know what it sounds like when a people, a group of people say, we want to go out into the desert to have a religious experience? Doesn't that sound like Jonestown? Pharaoh was actually saying to Moshe, and this came after Pharaoh said to them, you know, fine, you want to go out into the desert and do some rituals there, go. Well, we have to take everybody, men, women, and children. And here Pharaoh had a fit. And he said, now you're really crazy. Now you're really out of your mind. Why do you want to take the children? Why do you want to take the women? Why do you want to take everybody? Get together a couple of ministers or priests or whatever and go out there and do your thing. And then come back. But Moshe said, no, no, we have to take everybody, men, women, and children. Pharaoh said, this really sounds dangerous. And I'm telling you, you go out there and you're going to start hallucinating and you're going to start imagining things and you're going to end up killing yourselves with Kool-Aid or something. And the smart ones among you are going to come crawling back to Egypt for a little civilization, for a little sanity, because it's much more sane to be here as a slave than to be wandering around the desert looking for some spiritual unknown. What Pharaoh was missing at first was that the Jews were not, in fact, looking for God, and they were not, in fact, looking for a religion or a religious experience. Uh, Joshua, Yoshua, after the victory of Jericho, sums up the Jewish experience. And we read this in the Haggadah, in the text of the Seder. We read at the Seder table. God says through Joshua, in the beginning, early in your history, your forefathers were idol worshipers. But I took Avraham, God says, I took Avraham, your father, and I took him to the land that I chose for him. I settled him there. I gave him a son, Yitzchak. I gave Yitzchak two sons, Yaakov and Esav. 
And he goes through all the stages. I brought you down to Egypt. I took you out of Egypt to the mountain, and I gave you the commandments. The point that Joshua is making, which is very important in our relationship with God, the point that Joshua is making is God came and asked us to serve him. We weren't looking for a religion. We weren't looking for God. God came to us and said, come with me and do what I need you to do for me. That was the purpose of the plagues. The Jews could have left Egypt in some other way. The exodus could have happened through some other means. What was the purpose of the plagues? The purpose of the plagues was to convince Pharaoh and the Egyptians that this is God's doing, not the people's doing. It wasn't a group of people who wanted desperately to go out in search of nirvana. This was God coming to Egypt to extract a people for his purpose, for his service, for his needs. And how was that going to uh, express itself? How was Pharaoh going to be convinced of this? When God kept doing things that only he could do, that could only be coming from him, which would express the fact or show, demonstrate, that God wants this. It's not the people in search of God. It's God in search of the people, reaching out to the people. And after the 10th plague, Pharaoh realized this is really something different. This is not a religious experience in the common sense of the word. This is a divine plan. So when Moses first said to Pharaoh, in the name of God, let my people go so that they may serve me, that was a literal statement. It was not poetic and it was not uh, wishful thinking on the part of Moshe or the people. This was actually the fact. God wanted the Jewish people to work for him. Maybe he was impressed with how well we built pyramids, and he figured, you know, if these guys are so good, why don't I get them to work for me? And he came to Egypt to take a nation from among a nation. And that's what finally dawned on Pharaoh. This really is a different kind of relationship with God. What does this tell us concerning our world today? When we talk about religion and we talk about God and we talk about faith and we talk about the Bible, we have to be careful and we have to be precise in our language and in our intention. Our relationship to God is not the result of a human desire or human need. We don't go looking for a religion. We don't try to create a religion. We don't try to enhance a religion. All of these things are so dangerous. Every time we've tried, one of two things came about. Either we developed a senseless, meaningless, and useless philosophy, which made us completely irrelevant to history, or, at the worst-case scenario, we created some kind of evil some kind of ugliness that divided people and drove people to craziness. One of the big issues in, uh, in our thinking, in our belief, 
is that when we try to create a God in our image, when we feel a need for a relationship with God, we all do in one way or another, in one form or another. When we experience this kind of a need, there are two ways that we can go about it. One is to follow the need and see where it leads. This is dangerous. Our imaginations are fertile, and we could end up worshiping idols. And an idol doesn't necessarily mean a little statue. We can be worshiping a false god, a god of our own imagination, a god of our own creation. The other path, if, in fact, we have a need and we feel a need to have a relationship with God, that can only come as a result of God's desire for a relationship with us. Given that God is infinitely removed from our existence, from our level of existence, we couldn't possibly have a desire for him unless he created that desire. And how would he create that desire? By reaching out to us, by initiating the relationship. In other words, if God needs me for something, if God finds me useful in some way, which only he can because he has infinite imagination, and he can find even me useful to him, if that's the case, if God did in fact come looking for human beings to serve him or for the Jewish people to be his nation of priests, then that desire to get closer to him or to have a relationship to him is a reciprocal response, a reciprocal desire. And that is much safer. That is much more real, much more true. So what are we really looking for? We're not seeking to fulfill our desire. We are seeking to find where God has use for us. In what way can I be useful to him? In what way can I serve him? Of course, how are we ever going to know that? How could we ever know that? The only way is if God comes and tells us. So what are we doing when we search for God? We're not looking for an explanation to creation. To find and to believe in the existence of a creator, well, that's fine. That's not a relationship, and that shouldn't be called a religion. A religion means an interaction, a form of service, a way in which I can be useful to God. So it's not discovering a God, finding a God. It's not being visited by a divine being. There's only one definition that is healthy, and that is, what does he need from me? Not does he love me, not does he think I'm good, not will he reward me, and not even is he powerful. The only relevant question, the only question that will not lead us into trouble, and this is what Pharaoh was saying, if you're going to look for God, if you're going to, to discover a creator, if you're going to find yourself loved or visited by divine beings or by spiritual beings, even if it's awesome and powerful, it's dangerous. 
It leads nowhere except to self-indulgence. The only safe way is when we're not looking for those kinds of experiences. We're trying to find out what God is thinking and in what way we can be of service to his thoughts, to his plan, to his vision of the world. In other words, we cannot move away, we can't abandon the commandments that God gave us. That's our only safe relationship with God. He said, thou shalt, and we do. He said, thou shalt not, so we don't. That's the only safe way to go. How to find where and when God said these things? Well, naturally, we would hope that God would communicate his will, that God would communicate his plan in a way that is indisputable, in a way that is convincing, in a way that we can be confident that what we heard was correct. And the best way for God to do that, given our weaknesses and limitations, the best way for God to do that would be to do it in front of a very large group of people. If a million people walk away from an experience and they all describe it the same way, that is a real experience. At Mount Sinai, that's exactly what happened. So it works something like this. A person thinks, look, there's got to be something more to life. There's got to be a reason. There's got to be a purpose. Life without purpose is a contradiction. It's an oxymoron. Life means purpose. Purposeless is lifeless. It's dead. So there must be a purpose. If there is a purpose, it must be that the purpose brought existence, not existence brings purpose. A purpose means the plan that you have before you actually build. You build from a plan. You don't create a plan from a building. So purpose to life, purpose to the world, purpose to existence means a plan from which, out of which, the world was created. And therefore the creator must be intelligent and purposeful. Now that I've come to that conclusion, and a logical person must come to that conclusion, the next step is, how do I have access, where do I find access to what that plan was, to what that purpose is? Well, there's only one way. It must be revealed to us. We can't know what God's purpose. We can see the result of his creation, but we cannot know his intentions. We cannot guess at why he created and what satisfies him in his creation. And therefore, revelation becomes, again, a necessary logical imperative. God must communicate his plan, otherwise he might as well not have a plan, and then we're back to meaningless, purposeless, lifeless existence. So revelation becomes a necessary thing. So when my grandfather tells me that, in fact, there was a revelation 3,300-some years ago at Mount Sinai when God said, Thou shalt, thou shalt not, I'm not surprised, 
I was expecting that kind of thing. God had to have communicated sometime, somewhere. And there is this tradition passed down from generation to generation that, in fact, God did communicate. So it actually turns the whole thing around. Instead of trying to believe in an event, instead of trying to cough up some kind of leap of faith that, in fact, something happened at Sinai and there was thunder and lightning and God spoke and there were Ten Commandments, it's not a leap of faith at all. It's as necessary, it's as imperative as the fact that we had ancestors, that we were all born from parents, and the parents had parents, and so on. So when we hear about the revelation, it's exactly what we were expecting. We just didn't know exactly where and when. So the story of the Revelation, the story of the Exodus, and the story of the Ten Commandments, this is all a story that we were expecting to find. We had to find. And so when we're told about it with all of its details, that's exactly what we needed to hear. That's exactly what we were expecting. Only now we have the details. Historically, since that time, since that event, we have not been able to improve on the text. We haven't been able to come up with an 11th commandment. We haven't been able to come up with new moral imperatives that are not already included in the Torah in its 613 commandments. We have also haven't been able to come up with a sin that wasn't already included in the Torah. And that is quite remarkable because in 3,000 years of human history, we should have been able to produce, to bring into existence through our imagination and through our widely varied experiences, we should have been able to come up with some kind of behavior that was immoral but was not mentioned in the Torah. And we, we haven't. There is no such sin. And there is no mitzvah. There is no truly moral behavior that wasn't commanded and instructed in the Torah. So what does that say about our relationship? A relationship has to be two ways. A one-way relationship isn't a relationship at all. I go searching for God because I want to find meaning in my life. That's a philosophical pursuit. It cannot be called a relationship. And I can come up with the greatest philosophies, and I can come up with the greatest theories, and the most impressive thinking and logic, and I'm still alone in this world. I have no relationship with God. That's dangerous. That's dangerous. Because in God's world, if you're not relating to him, then you are worshiping a false god. If you find meaning in something other than him, you are finding the wrong meaning. You're coming to the wrong conclusion. And that's dangerous or meaningless. Meaningless at best, dangerous at worst. And so here's the story of the exodus from Egypt. Moses was saying to Pharaoh, God is calling us. Pharaoh was saying, oh yeah, here we go again with the wackos. God is calling you. He didn't believe it. He was attributing this to lazy thinking, to idle philosophical musings that were leading the people onto a dangerous path. And from his point of view, he was right. I mean, we've seen the results of this kind of thinking. And so he was saying to them, be realistic, be practical, be responsible. 
Stay in civilization. Stay rooted to earth. Stay rooted in reality. It may not be pleasant, but it's true and safe. It's real, and it's productive. Moshe was saying, there's a higher calling. Calling. God is calling. We're not imagining it. We're not looking for it. We're not pursuing it. God wants this, and we can't refuse him. We meaning everybody, including Pharaoh. In the end, Pharaoh agreed. He saw the light, so to speak. And what is the result as we look at it now? Pharaoh and his Egypt are long gone. They are the stuff of museums. They are an ancient curiosity, but nothing more. This is the message we need to take also to other relationships. You don't imagine yourself in a relationship. You respond to the other's need. And if you can't respond to the other's need, no matter how important the presence or the existence of the other, of the spouse, is in your life, you can't call it a relationship. You can't say, I have a wife, if you don't serve her, if you're not fulfilling her need. You can't say, I have a husband, if you're not fulfilling his need. And the fact that his presence does a lot for you, that's not a relationship, that's something else. That's a need, but it is not a relationship. And so the story of Passover, the story of Pesach, the exodus from Egypt, it's all a story about relationship. It's the ability to respond and not get carried away by our own imaginations, by our own needs and our own impulses. So the conclusion of this would be that in a relationship, it is better to serve than to be served. The issue is a very fundamental one. Where does God fit into our existence? How much of our lives is connected to God, is associated with God, is controlled by God? How much of our daily experience should involve God? How much does God involve our daily experience? This is really the heart of the issue. It's the heart of the problem. It's at the core of life itself. Let's lay down some ground rules. Let's assume that we all agree that in order for life to have meaning, God has to be part of it. We have to have God in our lives. That much is safe. Here comes the problem. What does it mean to have God in your life? What does that mean? It could mean that when your day is done, you've worked hard, you've taken care of your needs, you've been a responsible human being, and now you have some leisure time, you should devote that to thinking about God, to believing in God. Uh, you have a day off, you should spend that time praying. You should spend that time with God. So there's your ordinary weekday life, and then there are the special moments and the special occasions in which God exists in your life. 
So God is there to fill that particular space. But that space is very distinct and very separate from the rest of your life, which is your human activity, your productive, constructive, personal affairs in which you use your talents to achieve the best life materially, physically, that you can possibly achieve. But to make that complete, you also have to have the other dimension, and that is a religious side to your life, because there will be moments when you will need to fall back on that. Moments of grief, moments of terror, when you need the strength and you need the assurance that there is a God and that you can lean on him. That's one way of thinking. The other way of thinking is that there is no activity at all. There is nothing a human being may do that isn't a religious issue. Everything is about God. Every move, every word, every thought is about him. So life is God. God is life. And therefore, every activity should be governed Every activity should be restricted to the godly path, the godly way, the godly right and wrong. As a result of this thinking, you may read no books that aren't of a religious nature. You may not engage in any activity that doesn't in some way serve a religious purpose. Secular knowledge is now forbidden. The sciences are unnecessary. Art has no benefits, and we become very narrow in our view of life and the world, all in the name of God. When we have these two diametrically opposed systems, each one claiming that they are the right way, of course there's going to be trouble. Those who believe that every activity should be sacred that nothing should exist that is secular, nothing should exist that is mundane. There should be no human activity. There should be only divine activity. These people cannot be expected. They cannot be asked to be tolerant of the secular, to be understanding. They can't be. Because what you're doing is destructive of life itself by their definition. On the other hand, you can't expect people who believe in themselves, who believe in the secular side of life, but also want to have a divine presence somewhere in their lives. You can't expect them to be tolerant or understanding of those who say that their lives are vain, that they are involved in activities that are at best empty, void of meaning, and at worst idolatrous. There can be no understanding between the two. In fact, there should be no understanding between the two. Because if you want to talk about a person who is loyal to his beliefs, loyalty to your belief does not permit you to make exceptions. It doesn't permit you to be tolerant of those who flaunt those beliefs, who violate those beliefs. And so if you are convinced, if you believe in a system where every word and every act must be governed by divine law, then if you are loyal to that belief, you will not tolerate the secular, you will not tolerate the humanistic approach. 
On the other hand, if you believe in the humanistic approach, you cannot tolerate and you cannot accept the people who condemn you as idolatrous or condemn you as evil. There is a third possibility. The third possibility sounds something like this. God created a world that is mundane. God created a world that is physical. God created a world that is secular in its nature. The sciences are part of God's creation. The arts, part of God's creation. The human desire for these things, the need to know, the desire to understand the universe in which we live, to find the beauty that we can find within nature, within human nature, all of this is part of God's creation. Does that mean that this creation, as beautiful and as splendid and as magnificent as it is, does it justify its own existence? To this, the answer has to be no, not at all. Beauty needs to have purpose. Beauty needs to be elevated to serve a higher purpose. Not because beauty is not valid or significant. On the contrary, if God created something beautiful, all the more reason to use it with a higher purpose, with a higher intention. The more valuable something is on the human level, the more important it is to raise it up to the divine. And so, on the one hand, the secular is not to be dismissed. It is not vain or empty or meaningless because its potential is great. And its potential is divine, is holy. So when God gives us commandments, when he tells us how to behave in our marriages, when it tells us how to treat our parents, when it tells us how to relate to the universe, when it tells us how to see his glory in the heavens, which means in the sciences, what God is asking us to do is to voluntarily, by our free choice, bring godliness to the secular and raise the secular to the level of the godly. If we just break it down to the simple equation of body and soul. The body is absolutely precious and sacred. But that doesn't mean that it doesn't need to be elevated to a higher, more purposeful existence. And so there need not be a conflict between body and soul. There needn't be a conflict between the divine and the secular. There needn't be a conflict between your faith and your daily activities. The daily activities are significant. They are human activities. More significant than animal activity or plant activity or mineral activity. The human being is the crown of creation. And so everything human, every talent, every impulse, every need, every thought, it's all part of being human. And the human being is the crown of creation. To take that away would mean to diminish us to the level of the animal or the vegetable. On the other hand, to leave things as they are means that we have no purpose. If we can't improve on what God gave us, if we can't improve on what God created, then he doesn't need us. Then we have no purpose in his plan. 
So we have to believe that as great as the world is, the physical universe, as impressive, as beautiful, as awe-inspiring as it is by itself, we need to elevate it a notch higher. It is our job to bring it up to an even higher level, to bring what is good to the level of the godly. Of course, there is the struggle between good and evil. It's an important struggle. Part of the war that we're in now, at least the most practical, the most tangible part of it, the most tangible dimension of it, is simply good and evil. Evil has to be stopped. Evil cannot be allowed to, to destroy or to harm or to hurt. But that's the most basic level. After you've stopped the harm, after you've prevented the hurt, you haven't yet elevated the world to a higher place. You've only made it a safer place. But once the world is safer, then what? Then we just go about our business? Then we keep God and our daily lives separate, distinct? Not good enough. After the battle between good and evil, then there is the struggle between the good and the godly. The good parts of the world deserve to be elevated to godliness. Well, they are capable. They have the potential. They can be elevated to godliness. The evil, at least certain le levels of evil, cannot be elevated, and therefore they have to be undone. They have to be removed from the earth. The spirit of unholiness I will remove from the world. That's a description of, of the world after Moshiach in the time to come. It will be removed from the world. It will no longer be. But it won't be elevated to holiness. Only that which is good has a potential for the godly. So to turn the good into godly, that is the primary role of the human being. And that happens after the war. That happens when life is safe and stable. And then we can focus on what's good in, in the world and elevate it to the godly, to somehow harness the beauty of life and the beauty of the world to serve God's purpose. God's purpose is greater than the nature which he created, which he gave. And that's why we are still necessary. As beautiful as the world is, God wants us as his partners to bring voluntarily, to bring him into our good human activities, into the beautiful parts of our lives, and give it a divine soul. Breathe a soul into the human activities that are of themselves precious and desirable. The descriptions given for the end of days are horrific. The descriptions are of terrible casualty counts, of a world littered with, uh, with casualties. Now these dire predictions, according to our teachings, these dire predictions need not be fulfilled. Because if we do deserving things, if we are virtuous, if we are deserving, those dire predictions, although given by the prophets, can be overruled and canceled. No dire prediction must come to be because virtue can cancel them. 
So if we are deserving, if we've done enough good in our lives, if there are enough people in the world doing good, those dire predictions can be changed, can be ameliorated. They can be less dire, less destructive. This is what we should be hoping for. We should be hoping that the devastation predicted for the end of the world is an ideological devastation. Surely people are feeling that. When what you've believed in all your life, when your deepest held beliefs turn out to be worse than meaningless, but actually part of the problem instead of being part of the solution, that is so devastating. That is so disorienting. That, I mean, talk about having the rug pulled out from under you. When all of a sudden, what you were willing to die for isn't worth living for, this is devastation. And in the Torah, in the language of the prophets, physical devastation, emotional devastation, spiritual devastation, they're all interchangeable, depending on how deserving we are. If we are least deserving, then these devastations come in the physical if we are more deserving, they will come only in the emotional. And if we are most deserving, they will come only in the spiritual. Which means, if we are spiritually devastated, because it turns out that our faith has been wrong, has been bad, has been corrupt or toxic, and we discover this and we are shaken spiritually, it means that we are now awake to a greater truth, we are moving on to a greater spiritual reality, to a truer spirituality that will really satisfy our souls and not frustrate our souls and lead us to wars. That would be the best. That would be ideal. Next case scenario is that not only are we shattered spiritually, because our faiths turned out to be false. But as a result, we are also destroyed emotionally. Our sense of self is devastated. We're embarrassed. We're ashamed of ourselves. We are now emotionally handicapped, paralyzed. We can't trust ourselves anymore. We don't know what to think. We're not going to believe anything anymore because maybe it'll get us in trouble again. We don't have the confidence to seek a higher truth because we thought we had a higher truth and it turned out to be false. So if it's also emotionally devastating, then we have suffered a greater loss, more destructive. And of course, the worst case scenario is that we, we, we don't admit our mistakes, we don't recognize the fallacy of our thinking, and we go ahead stubbornly with physical combat, with war that ends up being physically devastating in terms of numbers and so on. We have to pray that that is not going to happen. We have to pray that after all these years, there are people who are humble enough, who are intelligent enough, and who are godly enough to recognize a mistake and to fix it. And that those who can't, those who won't, those who refuse, should be very few 
And if those are the only ones who have to be removed, if those are the only ones who have to be killed, that would limit the disaster, it would limit the tragedy, and that would be more of a blessing. So these are our prayers. The old conflict of faith, the old conflict in what does God want and how do we go about serving him? How do we bring him into our lives and how do we elevate our lives to him? This is at the core of life, and therefore it will be at the core of the most devastating disagreements in life. Once we work that out, and hopefully this will be within a matter of weeks, once we work this out, and once the world is ready to hear from God what God wants, and once we stop putting words into his mouth and creating them in our image, we could have a world that is awesomely, holy, godly, purposeful, meaningful, infinitely, infinitely more meaningful than heaven, infinitely more meaningful than a world in which there are no bodies, only souls, a world in which there is no secular activity, only holy activity, much more meaningful than that. When the secular attains the godly, and when the godly reaches down to the level of the secular, and when they become one, when they are fused in harmony, that's the life we're all looking for. That is the utopia that we're all dreaming about and that we are all convinced must come to be. Because you see, what has become clear from this whole conflict is that utopia is not a wishful thought. It's not wishful thinking. Utopia is necessary because either we have utopia or we have what's going on today. There is no in-between, really, at least not for any long period of time. You can have a lull, you can have a ceasefire, but unless you attain that utopian existence, which is an existence where all human beings recognize God's need and are devoted to fulfilling that need, Unless we have that utopia, we have chaos, we have disaster, we have war, we have ugliness. There is no in-between. Between true and false, there is no gray area. Because if it isn't true, then it's false. And if it's false, then it isn't true. So this is where we are in history. This is the closing chapters of a chaotic world finding its footing. Now is the time that it's going to happen. We want it to happen in the best possible way. We have to look forward to it happening in the best possible way. And we certainly cannot deny, or we must stop denying, the fact that this is a divine issue. It's not about territory. It's not about power. It's not about chemical weapons. It's not, it's not about any of these issues. It's not even a political issue. It's only about godliness. Because godliness gone wrong can destroy the world. When godliness is right, when we get it right, then it's utopia. Those are the choices. That's what it's come down to.